You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, It is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Darabin Prezi, and it's a real joy to be talking about Jesus' resurrection this afternoon. 
Uh, if you uh, find it helpful to follow along with an outline of my sermon, you can look up that welcome card that Adam pointed you to earlier via the website. Uh, have that open, that might be useful. Certainly it'll be useful to have 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to uh, reflect on the joyful reality of our Lord Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and we pray that that joyful reality would come home to our hearts and minds this day uh, in new and fresh ways. Uh, for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, I do wonder what it is that is most important to you at Easter. Uh, we saw in the, or we heard in the reading that Tracy just read, and Adam's referenced it already in verses 3 and 4 of today's passage, Paul says uh, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, what we remember at Easter, those things are matters of first importance. Right? They're central, Paul says. They're absolutely paramount. It's a pretty big claim, isn't it? Because they're, well, there are a lot of things that are important at Easter. Uh, spending time with family at Easter is important. Visiting friends is important. Taking some time to get some rest and relaxation is important. Watching football is important. I won't kind of try to uh, lift out, but if you're at the front, you can see my Max Gorn socks here uh, after I watched the uh, Melbourne Football Club last night. Like, watching football at Easter is important. Uh, eating lots of hot cross buns and delicious chocolate is important. There are all sorts of things that are important at Easter. Uh, so why is it that Paul says these events that, that happened kind of a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand years ago, rather, Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, why does he say they are of first importance? And particularly when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Well, what I want to say today is that Jesus' resurrection is so important because it's all about fairy tales. It's about fairy tales. And one of the great things about uh, having children uh, is that I get to be a big kid. You know, I get to uh, reread and relive all the books I love to read as kids, the great stories. Uh, Ada, and, Ada and I recently started reading The Hobbit together. Uh, we didn't get too far. She thought it was a little bit too old for her. But... It was wonderful, again, to enter into the, all the adventure and beauty of Middle-earth. Oh, we've read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe together. Uh, it's great to see the, the kind of enchantment on the kids' eyes as they open the door of the wardrobe and wonder, hey, maybe this could go through to Narnia. Oh, we've listened to, I don't know how many times, the magic faraway tree in the car. I'm not sick of it at all. But um, we've, we've listened to it lots of times. And there's a number of times where we've come to massive trees in parks and thought, wouldn't it be great to climb up to the top of that tree and enter into whatever magical land is at the top? I don't know what fairy tales you know. Maybe it's Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty. Maybe it's Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel or something, you know. Fairy tales are wonderful Fairy tales capture our hearts, our minds. They capture our imagination. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, one of the great writers of fairy tales, uh, had this to say about fairy tales. Let me find the quote. Uh, he says, uh, The joy of the happy ending in fairy tales, uh, the sudden joyous turn is a sudden and miraculous grace. 
It gives a fleeting glimpse of joy, he says. That's capital J, joy. Joy that goes beyond the walls of this world. It is the mark of a good fairy story uh, that however wild its events, uh, it can give to the child or person that hears it. Uh, When that turn comes, uh, a little catch of the breath and a lifting of the heart. This is what Tolkien's saying. All great fairy tales have a sudden and dramatic turn at the end. A turn that changes everything, that flips the script, that that turns everything upside down. A a turn that leads us to say, oh, we catch our breath and we say, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was true? Fairy tales touch on the deepest longings of our soul. The longing that we all have to have a relationship with an otherworldly being, whether it be a fawn or a dryad or an elf, a a supernatural being. The longing we all have to live in a world uh, that is untouched and unblemished. It's beautiful and majestic and glorious. Uh, To live in a world where good really does triumph over evil, where death has been defeated, where every injustice has been set right. Uh, where loving relationships go on forever, where people really do live happily ever after. We love fairy tales. They touch on the deepest longings of our heart. And what I want you to see today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that the joyful reality of Jesus' resurrection means that the wonder of every fairy tale is coming true. Big claim, right? The joyful reality of Jesus' resurrection means, in a sense that the wonder of every fairy tale is coming true. So let's take a look at this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, you might think, I didn't hear anything about fairy tales in that passage. Well, let's see. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, first of all, uh, in verses 1 to 11, Paul's writing to this church in the ancient city of Corinth, uh, and he gives them a whole bunch of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Why is it that this church that's actually experiencing some doubts about the resurrection... Uh, Not so much about whether Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, but about whether they would one day be raised from the dead. Uh, They're experiencing some doubts about the resurrection, and why should they be confident in the reality and power of the resurrection? That's what Paul's talking about in these first 11 verses. Uh, So first, if you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul points to the evidence of the transformed lives of the Corinthians themselves. I notice in those verses uh, that in the second half of verse 1, Paul says, the Corinthians have received the gospel and they've taken their stand on the gospel. Uh, The gospel there being the good news of Christianity, uh, the wonderful news that is centred on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, The good news, it's not about good advice, good do's and don'ts for us to do to earn our way into God's presence. It's good news about what God has done through Jesus. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians that they haven't just received this good news about Jesus, they've taken their stand on that good news, which is to say that they've borne some sort of cost for the sake of making a stand for Jesus. And I think right up front here, Paul's saying, that stand that you guys are taking for the sake of the gospel that you've received, that stand is living proof of the reality and power of Jesus' resurrection. 
It's not a bad piece of evidence. How else do you explain the radical transformation that's happened in the lives of so many Christians throughout history? Going from not knowing about Jesus at all to receiving Jesus and then being willing to embrace a life of persecution and suffering and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. What's your explanation for that transformation? Paul's explanation is the gospel. The good news that the Corinthians have received, the good news that has changed their life, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul points to the evidence of the Old Testament. So if you look there in verses 3 and 4, you'll see that Paul says, both Jesus' death and resurrection happened according to the Scriptures. He's saying that the Old Testament Scriptures, the, the, uh, the Jewish Scriptures, predicted that Jesus would, be, uh, would uh, suffer and die and that he would be raised again to glory. When I say Jesus, I mean God's king, the Messiah, the one who would be sent by God. And now we don't know exactly what passages Paul has in mind, but I suspect he might have had in mind Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 predicts that one day God's king would suffer on behalf of his people for their sins. So Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's because of verses like this that Paul can say, Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures. Jesus, God's king, suffered on behalf of his people. That's what we remembered on Good Friday. But also, Isaiah 53 uh, speaks about Jesus being raised again to glory. Isaiah 53, verse 11, says, After the suffering of his soul, God's king will see the light of life and be satisfied. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Isaiah predicts that after the suffering and death of God's king, he will be raised from the dead. He will see the light of life. And then what will he do? He'll share the spoils of his victory over death with all of his people, all the blessings of his victory. What's Paul? Why does Paul include this phrase according to the scriptures in verses 3 and 4? I think he's assuring the Corinthians that this idea that Jesus would be raised from the dead and that they would share in his resurrection, that's not some newfangled idea that he just made up. You know, he went into a cave and had a thought about, oh, Jesus being raised. No, no, no. This is something that was predicted in the Old Testament. These things happened according to the Scriptures. And then in verses 5 to 10, that long list of names there, uh, that's Paul pointing to the evidence of eyewitnesses. He points out Jesus didn't just kind of be raised from the dead and disappear into heaven without anyone seeing him. Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people. Uh, First, you'll see there that he appeared to uh, Cephas or Peter. That's a wonderful example of God's grace. Perhaps Perhaps as you sit here this Easter, you think that you've done something that God could never forgive. 
God could never show mercy to someone like you. Well, just remember this. Peter, the one who blatantly denied Jesus three times, didn't even want to be associated with Jesus. Peter is one of the few people who got a personal appearance from the resurrection Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. It's God's amazing grace. But as well as Peter, Paul points out that Jesus appeared to all the apostles. The apostles being those who were personally appointed and sent out by Jesus to represent him and speak on his behalf. And Paul says Jesus appeared to all the 12 apostles. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it wasn't just the 12 apostles. How many people did Jesus appear to? More than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time. I think this refers to Matthew chapter 28. You could could look it up later on. Uh, It was also there to some degree in in the reading that Adam read earlier from Mark chapter 6. When Jesus appears to the women at the tomb, he says to them, go and tell my brothers and sisters to come and meet me in Galilee. It's at that meeting that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters. And notice that Paul says, don't miss that detail here, he says, most of those brothers and sisters are still alive. Some have fallen asleep, that's a way of saying they've died, but most of them are still alive. What's Paul saying? He's saying, if you've got doubts about whether Jesus was raised from the dead, just go and talk to one of the well over 400 eyewitnesses who are left. There's plenty of people who could have come out and said, no, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Who could have taken people along to Jesus' tomb and said, here's his body. But they didn't do that. The consistent eyewitness testimony from well over 400 people who are still alive is that Jesus is risen. Now, Paul does not expect the Corinthians to believe in Jesus' resurrection just because, you know, without evidence. He says, investigate it for yourself. Go and chat to some of these eyewitnesses. Likewise, if you're here today and you're a bit sceptical about the resurrection, I don't expect you to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead without evidence. I certainly didn't. But I wonder if you might investigate the evidence for yourself. Look into the eyewitness accounts about Jesus' resurrection in the Bible and decide for yourself if you think they're reliable or not. Well, look in verse 7. There's another example there of someone who was radically transformed because Jesus appeared to them raised from the dead. It's James, Jesus' brother. You can read the gospel accounts about Jesus' family, but in the gospels, uh, Jesus' family, including James, thought Jesus was crazy for going around claiming to be the Messiah. They wanted to get hold of Jesus, kind of knock some sense into him, stop saying embarrassing things about the family. You know, like, like... But everything has changed for James. He saw Jesus, his brother, raised from the dead. He became a Christian, uh, an influential leader in the early church. You can read the book that he wrote in the New Testament. James? This is another example of the tremendous transforming power of Jesus' resurrection. Finally, Paul speaks about himself, doesn't he? 
Uh, Paul knows that he uh, didn't see Jesus raised from the dead at the same time as the other apostles. Uh, he wasn't appointed at the exactly uh, at the same time. So you notice there, uh, he says he appeared to. Um, uh, sorry, um, Jesus appeared to him last of all. Well, you can read about that in Acts chapter nine if you want to. And that's also why, if you look at the end of verse eight, uh, Paul says uh, that he's an apostle who's abnormally born. Uh, Of course, he's not commenting there about his physical birth and having some sort of birth defect. He's saying, I came into being as as an apostle in a kind of abnormal way. The other apostles were with Jesus during his life and ministry. They were all appointed at the same time. Me? Well, while they were with Jesus, I was persecuting the church. But Paul recognises that he is an abnormal apostle. In that sense, you'll see there, he says he's, among the, he's the least of the apostles. But he, he was persecuting the people of Jesus while the other apostles were getting busy in Jesus' purposes. And yet, again, we see an amazing example of God's grace. An amazing example of how Jesus appearing to Paul, raised from the dead, completely transformed his life. Going from uh, from persecuting, seeking to kill Christians, by God's grace, he says, to being the apostle who works hardest for the cause of the gospel. Again, that's an historical fact. Saul of Tarsus, persecuting, seeking to kill Christians. You can read about that in history. Paul the Apostle, going about, extending the good news of Jesus. You can read about that in history. How do you explain the transformation? I explain it by Jesus appearing to people raised from the dead. And in verse 11... Uh, Paul points out that there's great unity amongst all the apostles. This is another piece. They're all eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They all believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and they all proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is not just some quirky belief that Paul's invented. It's something that all the apostles are unified in. Now, of course, this isn't the only evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If you want to talk about that more, we can talk about it later on. But this is the evidence that Paul puts here for the Corinthians. What I do want you to see is that to become a Christian, you don't have to choose between faith and reason. The New Testament is very clear that there are good reasons to put your faith in Jesus. Why don't you investigate those reasons and decide for yourself if you want to put your faith in Jesus? Uh, On the other hand, uh, there might be a whole bunch of people here who really couldn't care less about whether Jesus' resurrection actually happened or not, whether it's true or not. What you're really interested in is what difference does it make? Does Jesus' resurrection actually change anything? Does it transform anything? Now, I understand that kind of difference between what's true and what works. In our culture, generally speaking, uh, people say that what works for you is what is true for you. It's not uncommon for me to say, uh, for people to say to me, uh, in perhaps a slightly quaint way, oh, isn't it nice, Aaron, that you found this truth that works for you in Christianity? 
Right? But because it works for you, it's true for you. It's not true for me. Something else works for me. Right? That's the way our culture sees things. But that's not how Christianity sees things. Christianity says that Jesus' resurrection only works. It only makes a difference. It only changes your life because it's actually true. Because it actually happened in history. If it didn't, Christianity doesn't work at all. And that's what Paul speaks about in verses 12 to 19. Right? He talks about all the consequences of there being no resurrection. So first, in verses 12 to 13, uh, Paul says, if you look at verses 12 and 13, he says, if there's no future resurrection hope of all Christians, then not even Christ has been raised. Maybe you can see his logic. If you're sitting here today and you think it's physically impossible for you to be raised from the dead at the end of the world, then surely it's also impossible that Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection's either possible or not. That's Paul's argument there. Then in verse 14, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, if there's no kind of future resurrection of all Christians, what's the consequence? Uh, the apostles' preaching is useless. It's got no substance at all. Why would he say that? It's because Jesus himself predicted that he would be raised from the dead. And so the apostles who were preaching about Jesus, it's like if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he's either a liar or a lunatic. He's certainly not the Lord that the apostles are saying. Their preaching lacks all substance because their preaching is centred on Jesus and Jesus is a hollow person if he wasn't raised from the dead. So it follows, look at the end of verse 14, if the apostles' preaching is useless, then anyone who puts their faith in the message the apostles are preaching, uh, their faith is also useless. Because the apostles, uh, me today, I'm calling you to put your faith in a Jesus, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, who actually didn't die for your sins on the cross and wasn't raised to give you the hope of eternal life. What sort of faith is that? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. In fact, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, if Christ wasn't raised, verses 15 and 16, the apostles are just plain liars. And they're going around bearing false witness about God, saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. But he didn't. I mean, if that's the case, I mean, if you can't trust the apostles with something as central to Christianity as Jesus being raised from the dead, then, well, what can you trust them with? So in verse 17, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is futile. It's completely ineffective. You see, Jesus' resurrection, amongst other things, is God's kind of stamp of approval on Jesus' death. It's God the Father saying, the death of Jesus, my son on the cross, actually did pay the penalty for all your sins. It actually did break the power of sin to set you free from sins. 
But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he didn't die on the cross as the perfect son of God dying in our place to pay the penalty for sins and break the power of sin. No, he died on the cross as, at best, a great martyr of history. And so what's the consequence? Paul says at the end of verse 17, you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile because it's completely ineffective if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I was looking at verse 19. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christians are to be pitied more than anyone. Uh, Here in Australia, uh, the choice to become a Christian sometimes brings some suffering but not a whole lot in comparison to other parts of the world. So if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know, but you might be tempted to still live as a Christian. You might think, well, I still have great times of singing songs, great community, friends that I've made, got to do something with my time, I enjoy serving and volunteering. Oh, I've at least got some good moral teachings from Jesus. I mean, they, they can help me to straighten out my life. Right? You might choose to keep living as a Christian, even if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But that has not been the case for almost every other kind of period of history when it comes to Christians. For most Christians throughout history, including these Corinthians, the choice to become a Christian is a choice to embrace a life of suffering and persecution and even losing your life for the sake of Jesus. And what's Paul saying in verse 19? He's saying, what's the point in doing that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? What a pitiable life. If this hope, if this life is all there is. Scan your eyes. If you've got 1 Corinthians 15 open, look down at verse 32. You'll see that Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's suck every last bit out of this life, every last bit of joy. Let's become absolute hedonists because this life is all there is and we must get our best life right now. This is what Paul's saying, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then to embrace this Christian life of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, that is something to be pitied. Paul's so strong in this passage, isn't he? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity is useless and Christians are to be pitied among all people. That's how central Jesus' resurrection it is. It really is of first importance. So thankfully, verse 20, Paul says Jesus has been raised from the dead. But he knows that we might not be exactly clear on when and how all of this kind of resurrection stuff is going to happen. What are the different stages of this resurrection? So that's what he talks about at the end of the passage in verses 24 to 28. He's kind of outlining a bit of a program for the resurrection. Uh, Let me uh, find my spot in the text. I'll take a look there in verses 20 to 22. Paul speaks first uh, about the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, First, in verse 20, he says, Christ has indeed been raised 
Uh, Christ has risen, as Adam says, he has risen indeed. Right? Paul doesn't want us, he doesn't want the Corinthians to be in any doubt about that. And he uses that word, he's been raised as the first fruits. Uh, it goes back to Leviticus chapter 23 in the Old Testament. You can read that uh, passage later on. But it's a passage that speaks when Israel's gathering in their wheat harvest, the priest had to offer up to God a sample of the crops. It was called the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, what's really interesting is that three days before that first fruits of the harvest was offered up to God, the Passover lamb was offered up to God as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Maybe you can see the kind of imagery that Paul's drawing on here from the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus is like the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who laid down his life on the cross Uh, that we might be forgiven and set free from our sins, accepted by God, adopted into his family, right? Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And then on the third day, three days later, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, Jesus was offered up to God his Father as the first fruits of the resurrection, just like the first fruits of the harvest in Leviticus 23. And just as the the first fruits of the harvest in Leviticus 23 was a sign that the rest of the harvest was coming, Paul's saying the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection is like a down payment on the rest of the resurrection coming. And that all those who belong to Jesus will also be raised with him. Paul drives that home in verses 21. If you look in verse 21, he says, physical death came into the world through one man. That's going back to Genesis 3. Adam's sin uh, separated us from God, the source of all life. So death came into the world through one man. But resurrection life, Paul says, also came into the world through one man, through the man Jesus Christ. Uh, So in verse 22, Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I think what Paul's saying is that Adam's sin affected everyone who's connected to him. Now, if you're not sure about that, just consider uh, the fact that all of us will die. That's the consequence of Adam's sin. So Adam's sin seems to have a pretty good strike rate. Adam's sin affected everyone who's connected to him. And likewise, Jesus' uh, great deeds, Jesus' resurrection will affect everyone who's connected to him. In a sense, everyone is going to be physically raised from the dead. But those who are connected to Jesus by faith in him will be raised to experience eternal life with God and his people forever. Christ is the first fruits of the full harvest of the resurrection. You see that in verse 23. Paul says that there's the, the first fruits. And then, he doesn't use the words full harvest, but that's the idea. All those who belong to Jesus will come next. And when that happens, Paul says, verses 24 to 28, the end will come. Now, I'm not not kind of getting all kooky here with kind of crazy tales about the end times. But Paul is speaking here about the end of this world as we know it, at the end of this world that's full of suffering and sickness and brokenness and injustice, he's saying that when Jesus returns, 
Uh, he, remember, Jesus taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That's, what, that's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. He's going to bring all the blessings of God's kingdom from heaven down to earth. Uh, so this world as we know it will end. And once Christ, God's son, has established God's kingdom on earth, uh, Paul says he's going to give the kingdom back to God, his father. Verse 24. Uh, Just as the first fruits of Israel's crop was a sign that the whole crop belonged to God, so also Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, uh, will give over the whole kingdom to God, his father. And look at verse 25. Paul says this giving over of the kingdom is going to happen once Jesus has put all his enemies, or rather, once his father has put all Jesus' enemies under his feet. You can read Psalm 110 later on. It's another one to add to the list. Psalm 110, verse 1. A wonderful promise. God says that one day a descendant of David is going to ascend to the throne... He's going to establish God's kingdom and he's going to have defeated all his enemies. All his enemies will be under his feet. And Paul's saying that promise has come true in the resurrected Jesus. Jesus one day will have defeated all his enemies. Everyone who opposes him will bow their knee and acknowledge him as Lord and King and he'll defeat all his enemies, in particular verses 26 and 27, including the last enemy of death. Death as it stands, in the end, defeats all of us. We might fight death all of our lives. We fight signs of ageing. We go to doctors, we seek medical treatment, we fight death. But in the end, death is always victorious, not over Jesus. Jesus destroys the last enemy of death. He crashes through death when he was raised from the dead. And so notice uh, that uh, those who belong to Jesus will never taste death again. For Jesus has destroyed death. So let's draw all this together. I started today by talking about fairy tales and how the wonderful reality of fairy tales often leads us to catch our breath and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was true? Well, I think we see in 1 Corinthians 15 today that there's good evidence that Jesus' resurrection is true. And as Tolkien says... The unexpected turn of Jesus' resurrection flips everything on its head. It changes everything. It flips the script. It brings an unexpected joy to our hearts. Why? Because it means, in a sense, that the wonder of every fairy tale is coming true. You you might read a fairy tale and think, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a relationship with a a being from another world, uh, from a different world, a supernatural being? Christianity says that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that's exactly what happens. You don't just have a relationship with some dwarf or fawn or dryad, but with the God who made everyone and everything. But fairy tales make us long for a world where good triumphs over evil and Jesus' resurrection says that's what happens. Fairy tales make us long for a world in which loving relationships go on forever. Jesus' resurrection says that's possible. 
They make us long for a world where death is defeated. They make us long for a world where, where we can, uh, where, which is unblemished and untouched by sin and suffering and weakness and brokenness that is glorious and beautiful, far beyond our wildest imagination. We long for that sort of world. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of that world. But the joyful reality of Jesus' resurrection means that the wonder of every fairy tale is coming true. That should lead you to catch your breath and at least say, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was true? And perhaps even better, wouldn't it be wonderful or isn't it wonderful that it is true? Uh, let's pray and then we'll sing. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this Easter Sunday on which we can celebrate the joyful reality of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we thank you that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Uh, it is that joyful, unexpected turn uh, that flips the script of history on its head. Uh, we pray, Father, that this day uh, we would at least uh, have a lifting of our hearts, a catching of our breath, uh, that we would say, wouldn't it be wonderful that the, uh, w- wouldn't it be wonderful if this were true? Or indeed, isn't it wonderful that it is true. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.